So unless I got my wires crossed, we're continuing the, server, the series on 1 Thessalonians. Good? Okay, then we're all good. It's always a good place to start. So I um, want to give you some context before I, before I get into what I want to talk about. I mean, I, I'm not quite as, as skilled as Stan with his fancy maps and all that kind of thing, but I think it's really, really just helpful to, to grasp something about what was happening over that time. And I want to read from Acts 17. Now, like, hey, Hilton, what's going on here? You, we're doing a series on 1 Thessalonians, and you're reading from Acts 17. But Acts 17 is the story, recounts the story of Paul going to Thessalonica, whatever you want to pronounce it. And I'm just going to read quickly. Now, when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, fun fact, that's where Apollonia was invented, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And Paul went in, as was his custom. And on three Sabbath days, he reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead. And saying, this Jesus, whom I proclaim to you, is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas. As did a great many of the devout Jews, and not a few of the leading women. And then it goes on a little bit on, but the Jews were jealous, and they kind of kicked up a little bit of a performance, which is not really important to the story. And basically, they ended up hounding Paul out of town. They got hold of Jason, who Paul was staying with, um, got him arrested. He had to pay bond, and Paul was hounded out of town. And that is literally the only reference to Paul's time in Thessalonica. And it's, it's, it's fascinating because if we follow the, the historical tract of that through, through Acts, is that so Paul, Silas, and Timothy... They come to Thessalonica, they have this little um, incident that was spend this time there. Three, three Saturdays in the temple, or in the synagogue, should I say. And probably a little bit of time, maybe a month or two after that, and Paul is hounded out. And so Paul moves on down to Berea, and then he ends, and he gets the same sort of pattern happens there. He gets hounded out of Berea. And he ends up, they take him down to Athens. So while he's in Athens, Timothy comes back, who was left, remember he was left in Thessalonica, comes back and joins him in Athens. They spend some time there. And then Paul sends him back to Thessalonica to go and teach and to minister and to do whatever. And while Timothy goes back there, Saul moves on and he ends up in Corinth. And Corinth where we get the, as the letters of 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians, Paul writing to them, which happened much later. While Paul is in Corinth, and he spent a long time there, Timothy comes back from Thessalonica, and he gives a report back to Paul about what's happening there, and which then stirs Paul to write this letter back to the Thessalonians and to say, hey, and this is, so that's kind of the context that we get this letter in. And it's, it's incredible because it's three seasons, three sessions in a synagogue, 
maybe a few months. And what's fascinating, if you just step back a little bit and you look at this, this thing that Paul calls our gospel. So when Paul speaks to them, writes them in Thessalonians, he says, our gospel, which came to you not just with, with, with words. That thing that Paul calls our gospel, in the short time, maybe two, three months, completely transforms these people in Thessalonica to the point that their faith is renowned over the whole region. Now, if you were somebody who, who, who wasn't a Christian, never heard of the gospel, never heard of Jesus, and you're reading the story, you, there would be a question that would jump out at you like, and gnaw at you. And it actually, it gnaws at me as well. In a way, what is this thing that Paul calls our gospel? What is this thing that is so powerful that in a couple months literally changed a whole community? What is this thing? As Christians, many of us have an idea what it is, but I want to dig a little deeper and look at what it really is. And I think what's, what's helpful, and oh, let me say it this way, how I'm going to do that, I'm going to go the other way around. You know, all of us have Christian heritage. We've got saved in different communities, different contexts, different churches. We have different theologies, a little bit about what the gospel is, what you should be doing, what's, what's the important things to do as a Christian, what are the not important things, what the gospel means. If you had to have 10 people, put them in a room and say, write down what the gospel is in 100 words, you would have 10 very similar things, but very emphases would be profoundly different. So what I'm going to do this morning, I'm going to start off with what the our gospel isn't. Okay. Because, and I want to say this, if I step on something that you get offended with, please go and chat to Lefefe afterwards. <laughs> and if he can't help you, Melinda's your next bet. Okay, but if I step on something that, that offends you or uh, just sit and listen through the whole sermon, let us get to the end before you start getting all, you know, worked up. It's nothing, nothing quite like a Christian whose holy cow gets touched. You know what I mean, hey? Nothing quite like that. Okay. Are we okay? You're going to give me the grace to do that. Let's just check if there's an exit at the back here somewhere. Okay. So the first thing that it's not is it's not a gospel of prosperity. It's not a prosperity gospel. You see, a prosperity gospel goes something like this. If you follow kingdom principles, you will be wealthy. And if you are not wealthy, it's because somewhere along the line, you're not following kingdom principles. That's not the gospel that Paul preached. Now, I want to ask you that this especially in the Western world, that this is so prevalent and it's, it sneaks into all other areas of the gospel, this prosperity gospel where there's a, a kind of an expectation if I do certain things, then God's going to look after me and reward me. Now remember I'm talking about the gospel, so what I'm, I'm not saying this is all wrong, 
Just hear what I'm saying. You see, if you think about it, we live in an environment where the world today, the narrative of the world today is shaped by things out of our control. So the media, advertising, all these things, the movies, series you see on television, it shapes the narrative of the world today. Now, the reality is, if you just take, let me give you a powerful example of how this works. You take advertising. Now, in the 1950s and 60s, when smoking advertising was allowed, they got to a point where their, their, their growth in smoking, in smoking consumption, hit a peak. It was the 50s, actually. It wasn't growing anymore. And they were sitting together trying to figure out how they can grow this. And you know what one genius came up with? See, 50% of the population didn't smoke, and that was women. So you know what they did? They started a whole campaign that to smoke a cigarette makes you an independent thinker as a woman. And they started this campaign, and it just took off. Women started because they wanted to be rebels. They didn't want to follow the, the norms. They wanted to be different. I'm a free thinker. And so the, the, the narrative of the day was formed by somebody wanting to sell them something. And unfortunately, the narrative of today is informed by people where it suits them for a couple of things. Number one, let me just check my notes here. It suits them to make you feel like you're entitled. You deserve it. You've worked hard. Anyone heard that in advertising? Fly now, pay later. You're worth it. Spoil yourself. That's the one thing. The other thing that they push is it's okay to be, I mean, it serves them to have discontentment, to be discontent with whatever you have. I mean, I got a, a new car, well, not a new car, a new car for me, and it's like, man, this is amazing. My old car was like getting on in years. And then I've had it like three weeks, and I'm reading an article about the new model. And I'm looking at all the things my model doesn't have compared to this one, and I'm like, I put this down, I, think, I can't believe it. Then I'm like thinking, how am I gonna get to the new model? See, that, that's the narrative of the day. It's making you discontent, and it's making you feel entitled. And so into that comes a prosperity gospel which says, be discontent with what you have, and you're entitled to more. See, it's the gospel of the world. It's not the gospel that Paul preached. Helpful. Now, I'm not saying that every Christian has to be poor. I'm not saying that at all. What I'm saying is, the prosperity gospel is not the gospel that brought change in Thessalonica. The second thing that the gospel isn't, it wasn't the gospel of the church. Now, the gospel, this is, gets a bit tricky because the gospel of the church sounds, looks, smells quite a lot like the real gospel, but there's a subtle difference. The gospel of the church goes something like this. Come to church and sort your life out, and it will go well with you. Oh, you've got problems. Well, you need to be at church. Now, it's not wrong, but it's not the gospel that brings change. 
It's not the gospel that changed a community in three months. You with me? No one's like fuming yet, can't see any steam rising, so we're good to carry on. The third thing, which I call, it's similar to the gospel of the church, is the gospel of good. Do good, and it will go well with you. Be good, be kind, and it will go well with you. Not a bad thing, but it's not the gospel. You see, what the belief system behind the gospel of good is that there is a standard of behavior that attracts the favor of God. There is a standard of behavior that makes God like you. When you're behaving a certain way, when you're not smoking, when you're not drinking, when you're tipping the car guard a little bit extra, doing all the things you should be doing, God is happy with you. None of those are bad, but they're not the gospel. Okay, hold on to your seats. The gospel of grace. The gospel of grace. The gospel of grace goes something like this. Everything was accomplished at the cross. You have nothing to do. Sounds good, but it's not the gospel that brought change and transformed people. You see, I, there was a wave, if, you, if you've been a Christian for a couple of years, there was, this, there was a, a wave of, of the grace gospel that came, came through the communities. And, and many people, in many ways, were profoundly set free from being under religion and under condemnation and under all sorts of things. They were, they were set free especially those under legalism. And it was like, oh, this is the best thing in the world. I had a friend of mine who was a pastor, and he said to me, when he had that, he said, it's like I've been saved again. And he says, I know I can't get saved again, but that's what happened to me. I'm saved again. And it was a beautiful thing. It was, it was very, very powerful. But it's not the gospel that brought change. Let me explain. You see, the gospel of grace is a truth. And what happened was they were set free from legalism, but they didn't deal with the hurts and the brokenness from that. And then most of them ended up in deception. I've got one friend, who, a friend that, very, that, were, that we know quite well, that are completely non-Christians anymore. That the gospel of grace hit them, they changed completely, and they just carried on going left and never came back. And they're out the church, in fact, worshiping all sorts of other deities now. And everyone, every, every road leads to Jesus. So the gospel of grace is not the gospel that brings change. The gospel of justice or social justice. And in this country, it's like if you say something like that, you're clubbing seals. 
you know, it's just like the worst thing in the world you can say. But the gospel of justice or social justice is not the gospel that brought change. You see, when your primary concern is a person's present state, it's kind of like, you know when you, I've, I've used the analogy before, you know when you're going on a plane ride and in, back in the day, before they had those like planes parking at the airport, you get onto the bus and then you get to the plane and then you get on the plane, you know, and when justice or social justice is your primary concern, it's like you're helping people fight for better seats on the bus, but you're ignoring whether they've got a ticket for the plane ride. So you make them comfortable in the bus, they have the best seat on the bus, but they can't get on the plane. You're selling them short. And I promise you, if they got to the other to heaven and they would see you, they would scold you and say, how did you do that to me? How dare you do that to me? You gave me food for that day, but you didn't give me eternal life. The gospel of social justice is not the gospel that brings change. Now, I'm not saying that stop doing what you're doing. I'm not saying that at all. I'm just trying to put some context here. The gospel of healing. You know these guys, that it's, it's, everything is around healing. Inner healing, body healing, this healing, that healing. It's the same thing. It's not, not a bad thing, but it's not the gospel that brings change. Okay, the last one. The gospel of repentance from sin. Do you know that nowhere in Scripture are you required to repent from sin? Now everyone's going to start pulling out their dictionaries. Seriously, you're not. And I, relax, I'm going to walk you through this. I'm going to get you all to the other side and we're all going to like, aha, okay, I see your point. You see, repentance... No, let me leave it at that. I'll come back to it now. So that kind of comes back to what is this gospel that brought change? Because I think if you're all sitting in church, you have some idea that the gospel is, is, is so, so important in our lives. It's central to our belief system. It's central to who we are as Christians. I mean, without the gospel, we're not Christians. Do you know what I mean? Yet, what is this gospel? If it's not any of those things that none of them sounded wrong. Do you agree with me? They're all like not bad things. But they weren't the gospel that brought change. Matthew 4.23. First time the gospel is mentioned. The gospel of the kingdom. That is the gospel that brings change. And I'm going to explain it a little bit so we all understand it. The gospel of the kingdom. 
In other, in Mark, it's the gospel of Jesus Christ. Mark also says the gospel of God, but it's the same thing. Jesus, Jesus Christ, God, and the gospel of the kingdom all refer to the same thing. To the rule, it's the gospel, the good news, that the rule and reign of God has come close again. And is attainable. Let me explain. If any of you are sort of history buffs or whatever, you all know what the Berlin Wall was. After the Second World War, the kind of the, the Soviets were attacking Germany from this side. The Allies, that's the, the Americans, the British, and the Canadians were attacking Germany from that side, and they kind of met sort of in Berlin. Not quite, but sort of in Berlin. And so at the end of the war, no one could trust the Germans, so what they decided to do was divide Germany up, the Americans, the Allies look after one half or two-thirds, and the, the Russians can look after a third. And so very quickly the Russians decided that communism was great for Germany, and they started implementing their communist policies on their side of the wall. The problem was that nobody particularly liked it. So everyone was like hopping, going to the other side. So they realized this is not a sustainable thing, so they built the Berlin Wall. And it literally went through some people's apartments. It just, this huge wall with mine, barbed wire minefields, and it basically, it kept all the East Germans in and stopped freedom. And it's a beautiful picture because that is two kingdoms very, very close to each other, but nobody can go across. And on this side, it's the rules of the GDDR, which is the German Deutsche Demokratische Republik in German, however that sounds. And on this side was West Germany, democratic and a little freedom and do whatever you like. And nobody could cut across. No one would get across. And, and since Eden, that has been the state of the world. Adam and Eve were kicked out of the kingdom, kicked out of God in the place where God lives, and it was closed to us. For thousands of years, heaven, the kingdom of God, has been closed to us. And then what God does is he reboots Eden, and he finds this Iraqi person called Abram, and he says, Abram, come. I'm going to reboot Eden. I'm going to restart a people, because the first lot of people didn't work well. I'm going to find a people for myself. And the whole Old Testament really is the story of God dealing with Abraham and his descendants, who becomes Abraham, and then that doesn't work out so well, so he puts in laws and all these things to keep these people okay, to get them to a place where God can bring a new covenant. Now, even though the Jews, the Israelis, the, the Jewish people were God's people, they were not allowed entry into the kingdom. The only place they got was once a year, the high priest could come in after he'd cleansed himself, slaughtered 25 cows, done this, done that, done whatever he'd done, had to do, go through this whole ritual, he would enter once a year. And if he wasn't, hadn't dealt with himself properly, he would die in the presence of God. So they'd tie a rope around him. So obviously he dies there, 
no one's going to go in and get him. You know what I mean? It's like, you're on your own, buddy. You know? So they tie a rope around him so they could pull the guy out you know, if he died. The presence of God was so ferocious that that, that that was what it did to our sinful state. But the heart of the Father, he had a plan. This plan was the gospel. This plan was the good news. It was coming into place. So Jesus Christ, the Son of the living God, humiliates himself, reduces himself to humankind, comes to earth, and he makes a covenant with his Father. And he can make the covenant because he's the only human that can keep a covenant. So he makes this covenant called the new covenant with his Father, and then he invites us in to his covenant. And he says, come, repent and be baptized. And come into my covenant, and then you're safe. You're back into the kingdom of God. So for all these years, we've been locked out of the kingdom of God. We're now back in because of Jesus. It's just beautiful, beautiful. And that's the gospel, that we have access. And not only that, not only that, he knows it's going to be hard for us. So he puts his spirit in us to soften our hearts, to put his laws and his ways deep into us so we can intrinsically, by listening to the spirit, we can walk at peace in this kingdom that we couldn't maintain all those years ago. But now we can because of the gospel. It's a beautiful, beautiful picture. Now, what is interesting is repentance. Remember I said there is no repentance from sin. Do you remember that? With me? But repentance is the mechanism that we enter the kingdom. Okay? Repent and be baptized. That's the mechanism that we enter the kingdom. Now, the baptism part is beautiful because it's a picture. What the baptism says is, so Hilton Mandel, as a German citizen in the communist side, I encounter Jesus and I get baptized. What happens is, I die to that side. I'm not dead there. They have no rights to me. The Democratic Republic of Germany with the Stasi and with all those things have no right. I now come alive in Christ into the kingdom of heaven. I am, I was an orphan. I'm now a son. I was an orphan. I'm now a daughter. And this locks in. In Romans, you read about when you die, nothing, you know, when somebody dies, they own nothing. They can't own it. A dead person can own nothing. That's what they do. They wind up the will. They wind up the estate because a dead people, you can't find a dead person guilty of anything. You can't find a dead person who can't own anything. He's got no responsibility. He's got nothing. Nothing you can do to a dead person. Nothing this world can do to us if we're dead to this world. Because we're alive in Christ Jesus. So repentance and baptism, are you all with me, is the mechanism that we get into the kingdom. So let's look at this word repentance. Are you okay? It's going to be a little technical, but we'll be quick. Quick sticks. So the 
word repentance, the English word repentance, and if you're not English, you're just going to have to go with me because we preach in English, so the, the, the meaning comes from the English word. The English word repentance comes from the Latin word. There's a Latin word, and I'm going to butcher this so badly, but that's okay, which literally means ponitere, which says ponitere, which literally means to make sorry. That's what it means. And you can kind of get that. It's repentance close to that. To make sorry. I feel bad. Oh, I was a bad oak. Oh, I repent. I'm sorry. In fact, we even have this thing. Oh, I don't think Brandon really repented. It's like a popcorn confession. He wasn't really sorry. If he was really sorry for what a sinner he was, he would have changed. Anyone heard that? You know what I mean? Hey, we all just like, oh, is that a real Christian? What? Well, they haven't they repented? Okay. So, now, the ponitia, that Latin, word, that Latin word, comes from the Latin word called pun, P-O-E-N, and I'm also butchering it, so forgive me. And you know what that means? Pain. Ouch, pain. Repentance is connected to pain in Latin and also in English. You with me? Okay, so that's where we, that's where we are, Okay. Now, there's three English words that come from that same Latin word. Number one is penance. It's, so penance is, if I need favor with Lefefe, I do some penance with him to get back into his good books, to get favor from him again. Do you understand? You all understand that, okay? That's the first one. The second one is penitence. Penitence is contrition, um, remorse. So when I do something bad, I have penitence. I, oh, flip me, I can't believe I did that. You know that, that, okay? Similar, you can see that fitting in that word. And then the third word is repentance. And repentance really is to do either of the first two so that you will live a better life. To do either, so to do penance, Penitence, so either grease Brandon, be really apologetic to Lefefe, or do both of those so that I live a better life. And we can see that in the way we understand uh, repentance as Christians. Okay. Now, this is where we get funny. This is where the fun starts. So, obviously this, the Bible, well, the New Testament was written in Greek. Okay. No, no one, not Zulu Lefefe, it was Greek. Just how it is, I'm sorry about that. It wasn't English either. And when, when the, in 382, so it's like 300 years after Jesus, it was Latin, had Greek, Greece was in the Western Europe, was going less and less, and Latin was becoming more and more. So they translated the Bible the, the, into Latin. Okay, and there was this guy called St. Jerome. In 380 AD, he translates the Bible from Greek into Latin. Now, St. Jerome was an amazing guy, but he had some flaws. The first thing is, before he got saved, before he became a Christian, he was quite a naughty guy, and he would do... Now, listen, if you're naughty in Rome in 300 AD, it's not like normal university naughty. You know? It's not like maybe being slightly promiscuous or anything like that. It's like bad. You know, so Jerome had some issues, and what he'd do, he'd he would 
do all the it was sexual issues, all sorts of things, and then he'd feel such shame about this, he would go, go down to the catacombs of Rome, where all the dead people are, and punish himself, just sort of as a penance. This is not a Christian yet, to kind of, and he'd stay down there to get off his guilt and his feeling bad for the bad behavior that he's involved in, okay? So he had this understanding in his mind, okay? He gets saved, learns Greek, and the Pope says, hey, St. Jerome, you quite think, can you translate this for me? No problem. So he comes along, and he gets to the Greek word metanoia, and he understands repentance because he's gone through cycles of that in his own life. And he says, ha, ah, I know exactly what that means. It means metanoia. It, it means repentance. So he translates the Greek metanoia, which is the word for repentance in the Greek, and he translates it to which is the Latin for which becomes our repentance, okay? Now, all good. Now, the problem is, for the next 1,000 years, the Latin Vulgate becomes the de facto Bible of the Western Church. In fact, Vulgate, is, is, it comes from the word vulgar, which actually means common. Now it means bad. If you say in English, oh, he's rather vulgar, you mean he's being rude or whatever, but back then it meant common common, normal, the normal Bible. So it was the Latin, normal person's Bible. Except the normal people weren't allowed to read it, just the priests were. But anyway. Then, almost to the day, a thousand years later, now remember, at that time, translating the Bible out of Latin, they, they would burn you at the stake. There was all sorts of weird stuff going on in those days, which we, I don't want to be on the scope of the preach. But a guy called John Wycliffe translates the Bible into English for the first time. And he knows Latin better than he knows Greek. And he takes the Latin word, pornetir, and he translates it to the English repentance. I mean, it's fascinating. When he translated the Bible to English, he invented so many words. Do you know that? Do you know the word beautiful comes from John Wycliffe? He couldn't find an English word that meant what he thought it meant, so he made up the word beautiful. Isn't that fascinating? So you can see, so in English, now the whole time through the Catholic Church, we have this understanding of paying penance, and you can see it if you, under, if you study church history, when you're bad, it's a problem, and you've got to repent, and you've got to show sorry, and you've got to do your thing. But if we go today, and we go all the way back and say, what did the Greek mean? Because that's what was originally, that's what the authors originally wrote. They didn't write pointer, they didn't write repentance, they wrote metanoia. And literally, metanoia means to change your mind. That's it. And it can, it's not a frivolous, mm, should I have the steak or the fish, mm, mm, mm. okay, I'll change my mind and I'll go for the fish. It's not that. It's a deeper, to change your thinking, to change your, your mental framework, to change the way you do things, the way you see things, to change your paradigm. These are all things. In fact, metanoia and metamorphu, you know that in Romans 12, be transformed, that word transformed is metamorphu, 
and metanoia, those two words can be used interchangeably. So in, in, in Greek, you can use either metanoia or metamorpho. Transformed, change your mind, change your thinking. Same, they can mix them. So in the Greek, it reads this. Change your thinking, not because you're a sinner, but because the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Or it can be translated because the kingdom of heaven is very close. And so what the Greek is saying is saying, if you want to enter the kingdom, you have to change the way you think so you can be part of that, so you can enter that. You see, repentance is a backward-looking word. So if you think about it, when you say repent, repent from what? My sin. Do you agree with me? That's kind of what you're going to think. So you look backwards to how bad you were. Now the problem is, if you meet people who have no Christian paradigm, you first got to convince them that they're sinners before they can repent. Well, I'm not a sinner. I'm a good guy. No, you're not. You're a sinner. Wow, well, no one, you know, you've got to do the work to convince them that they're bad so they can repent. But that's not what the Greek is saying. That's not what the scripture is saying. That's what Jesus said. Jesus said, change your thinking because the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So don't think like the world thinks. Don't be conformed to the world's way of thinking, but be transformed by the kingdom. Now, how does the kingdom transform us? Have you ever thought of that? It transforms us when we see it, when we see him, when we know him, when we become him. You, it's the, the glory of what is to, in front of us causes me to change the way I behave and the way I do and the way I think. Now, that might mean being sorry for my sin. It probably will mean. And it might mean having to fix things and being apologetic and going through all those things. But the point of repentance is because I see the kingdom, I see what Jesus has done, he's inviting me into this covenant that he has with his father, that I leave the GDR, I come into the king, I come into freedom, I come into a whole new space where I'm not controlled by anything, but I worship the king of kings and I'm his brother, I'm his sister, I'm a son of God, everything changes. But I have to see that, to know that. And I promise you now, if you think looking at your sin hard enough is going to change you, you're going to end up stuck in a rut. No matter how apologetic you are, you can't get over it. If you look at Paul, let me give you an example. Paul. There's, there's different speculations, but they, they're kind of saying that he killed, it personally by his hand, at least a dozen, but probably in the hundreds of people. Paul the Apostle. Probably children as well. Wives, children, pulled people out of their homes, got them killed for being Christians. He understood that he was the worst of sinners. But he didn't hop on that. Every now and again he had mentioned it. But he, it was the glory of God. He had been taken to heaven. He saw who he was, what he was. That was the thing that changed him. He didn't get there because he was repentant enough about how bad he was. He got there because Jesus died for him and invited him into this relationship that Jesus keeps, keeps tight with the Father because he keeps the covenant. We don't have to. We just have to be next to Jesus. And that's the power of the gospel. That's what changed these people. It's beautiful. 
And what we do, we live in this mixed up thing of half here, half there, and stuck going over the same sins and the same problems over and over again. So we haven't allowed the gospel to transform us. Because we haven't changed our thinking. We haven't seen who we are now. We're stuck in a gospel of prosperity, a gospel of this, a gospel of good, a gospel of something. But not a gospel of the kingdom of Jesus Christ, Son of the Most High God, who's died for you and made a space for you to come in as a son and a daughter, not a slave or a servant, a son and a daughter, and take your place to rule and reign with him for eternity. That requires a different type of thinking. Not the, oh, life is so tough. Oh. Jesus, thank you. I'm ready to walk into what you have for me. I know you're going to give me the strength because you've put your spirit inside of me. In me, I can undertake all things because I'm no longer bound by those rules. I'm bound in this kingdom. Now remember, the picture of baptism shows us dying, coming alive. And there's a beautiful story of, of, the, of the people going to the beach to get baptized. And they're kind of, they're all there and getting baptized, and the one guy's about to get baptized, and he says, whoa, 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 whoa. Takes off his hat. Takes off his watch. Puts it with the hat. Takes out his car keys. Puts it in the hat, takes out his wallet, puts it in the hat, puts it to the side and says, right, I'm ready to go. I'm going to get baptized. I'm entering the kingdom, but my thinking, my cap, my money, my car, and my time, you're not having that, God. And then we wonder why we're struggling. Why there aren't people saying, flip, that person, Lefefe, there's something about the way he lives his life. Man, there's just... Oh, the faith that he carries. There's, he's like, he's living from another space. He's not in the same place. I've got load shedding. I've got bonds that gone up. I've got this. I've got that. I've got that. But Lefefe doesn't. Why? In actual fact, he has. But he knows where his source is from. And so, church, I want to offer us, I'm going to finish with this, a moment where we can look again and our hat, our thinking, our keys, our wallet, and our watch. And maybe we need to come out of the water, go back onto the beach, metaphorically, pick them up and say, Jesus, these are coming with me. I'm going to be fully in your kingdom. Because you know what the scripture says, where your treasure is, there your heart is. So if you leave your treasure there, if you own property in East Berlin, your heart's going to be in East Berlin. If you leave your watch in East Berlin, you're just living this side, waiting for someday for East Berlin to be okay so you can enjoy it again. So why don't we close our eyes? Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. This gospel 
that Paul preached, this gospel that you shared, this gospel, this good news, that you came as God, but you came down as man, and you made this covenant called the new covenant, which is a covenant of forgiveness and grace and mercy. And you invite us into that because you're holding it steady. You've locked us and nothing can take us out of your hands because you're holding the covenant. And we just partakers of it in Christ. Thank you for that. 